Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, the truth incarnate and the teacher of the faithful, let your spirit overshadow us in reading your word and conform our hearts to your revelation that learning of you with honest hearts, we may be rooted and built up in you, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one ever God, world without end. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we will also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people. The same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. This is a letter written by three preachers to one congregation. Preachers and congregation had known each other maybe as little as two months, and only one month, the first month, were they together. They'd been apart now a month. This letter is meant to reconnect. It is personal. At points, it is intimate. Paul's later letters, and all of them are later, this is his first, will challenge us with their profound theology and demanding ethics. Faith and faithfulness are not easy matters. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy will speak in more theological and ethical terms later in this letter. But these first three chapters, the greater half, is personal. 
In some sense, it's easier on the mind and will. But in another sense, it's tough on the heart. Their separation had brought grief, anxiety, fear, and a deep, unsatisfied yearning. They want to be together, but cannot. Violence keeps them apart. So the three preachers write a letter to the new believers in Thessalonica. By it, they hope to be in each other's presence. Seneca is another writer contemporary to Paul in the Roman world of that day and says simply in one of his letters, I never received a letter from you without being in your presence immediately. That's their hope. The separation had been forced on them. From the first day the gospel was preached and the first hearer believed, there was opposition in Thessalonica, an angry mob, arrests, violence. The new believers, fearing less for their own lives than that of the preachers, insisted that the preachers flee to safety out of the city. They did, reluctantly. The Bible calls it an escape. But, and here's the rub, the preachers escaped the persecution there. The month-old congregation did not. In the first chapter of this letter, last week's sermon, we learned how very relieved were the preachers to hear that the congregation had survived at all, indeed was now thriving. The persecution had not let up, but neither had the new believers. Faith and faithfulness were strong. The Holy Spirit was present, so too therefore was joy of all things. They had not only kept the faith in the face of severe consequences, they were giving it away, preaching like the preachers had far and wide in the midst of opposition. So, thanksgiving, first thanksgiving. See what God has done, faith. See what God is doing, love. See what God will do, hope. Thanksgiving, first. But there's another concern. This chapter two addresses it. There's a fine line sometimes, but a world of difference between escaping and abandoning. The preachers were worried not only about what happens to the new believers, but they were worried about what had happened to us. Preacher and congregation, apostle and convert. Not to say life had been easy for the preachers. They had been in Philippi immediately before Thessalonica, arrested, flogged brutally, imprisoned there, and driven out of the city. They went to Berea after Thessalonica. Troubled followed them there on day one because the same persecutors of Thessalonica just followed them up the road. Athens was next. It had been a bust, no violence, but few converts. And Corinth now was the major endeavor. Neither success nor safety guaranteed there. Still, still, the preachers had left. The congregation had stayed. Was there resentment? Was there bitterness? Easy enough to imagine. Distance and silence lead to misunderstanding. Was there a distance between them not to be measured now in the 350 plus miles only? How could there not be? Well, Thessalonians might think when the going get tough, gets tough, they, and here we are. The three preachers sent Timothy, the junior partner, back to Thessalonica to see what remained, to cheer whoever might remain, to discern if there was still an us, preacher of the gospel and believer of the gospel, and to report back. 
Timothy's report cheered, and Paul especially. Not only were they excelling in faith and practice, they thought of Paul in the dearest terms, glad he was safe, carrying on in his absence. More on this next week in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is about the congregation. Chapter 2 about the apostles. But preacher and congregation are not alone. There is opposition, ever-present, always near, all the time, every time, always whispering slander. They accuse falsely all the time. The preachers were easy targets. The false accusations would come too easy. Preach and run, eh? They talk about a suffering Savior, but avoid it themselves, leaving you to bear the brunt of it. In it for their own advancement, seeing none, they quit the place and you. Where are your heroes now? You've been tricked. Fearing that these false accusations might dissuade the new believers and distance them from the preachers and the gospel, the preachers write back. They write furiously here. Their reputation is at stake, so too, therefore, is that of the gospel. One, we suffer. We suffered before we came to you. We suffered while we were with you. We suffer now. The opposition was strong. We kept preaching. Clearly, we're not in this for personal gain. Two, our motives are pure. Our ready endurance of the suffering for you demonstrates this. Whatever else we may be accused of, people-pleasing is the least obvious. We didn't please anybody. We, you know this, do all things to please God. God knows this too. Three, we didn't trick you into anything. We, we didn't try. We didn't flatter. We didn't ask for any financial support. We didn't bully. We were like children among you, gentle. God knows this. Four, we loved you. Like a mother cares for her children. Like a nursing mother cares for her children. We shared not only the gospel, but our own lives. Five, we worked hard night and day. We were not a burden to anyone. You know this. Six, we lived lives holy, blameless, righteous, like a father with his children. We encouraged, comforted, and urged you to live godly lives. We did this by words and by example. You know this, and God knows this. We've got two witnesses on this. Don't be persuaded by what the detractors say in our absence. You are witnesses to how we spoke and lived in your presence. Most of all, when we spoke... You were persuaded by God, receiving the word as God's word. That work, that word is at work within you. Listen to that word, not the falsely accusing word. This was not a Thessalonian-specific problem, but empire-wide. Somewhere at the intersection of entertainment and education, speech and seduction, performance and persuasion, orators would enter a town and preach with the purpose of gaining fame and fortune. Then they would leave quickly, enriched, rewarded, leaving behind, often enough, confusion, division, and sometimes a sense of betrayal. The preachers imagined by their quick exit, it was too easy to be accused of all of this. This phenomena in the ancient city all over the empire, but especially in Greek places like Thessalonica, was the work of those who were often called sophists. They were a concern for the discerning, a delight for the crowds. Listen to Dio Chrysostom, a contemporary to Paul and Silas and Timothy, describing these traveling orators. To find a man who in plain terms and without guile 
speaks his mind with frankness, and neither for the sake of reputation nor for gain makes false pretensions, but out of goodwill and concern for his fellow man stands ready, if need be, to submit to ridicule and to the disorder and uproar of the mob. To find such a man as that, well, it's not easy, but rather the good fortune of a lucky city. So great is the dearth of noble, independent souls, and such an abundance of flatterers, mountbanks, and sophists. The preachers, knowing that charlatans filled the public square and that their own itinerant ministry, city to city, would lend itself to comparison and too easily be identified with it, from the moment they entered the city, they spoke and lived differently. To be clear, the preachers did not first begin to imagine their vulnerability to these charges only after their quick escape, but before their entrance. Anticipating the association with hucksters, they spoke plainly and lived openly from their entrance. Often they say, will say, when we came to you, meaning by that not our stay with you, but when we walk through the city gates first. Others would pursue gain and reputation. They would sacrifice all for the gospel. The gospel, that's what marks the difference, and it's the why of different speaking and living. Paul will write in other personal letters. In them he will speak, as he does here, about being entrusted with the gospel, a servant with a treasure. Paul's not the prize. The proclamation of the gospel is. Paul, by his own admission, will never fathom fully the grace of God, remembering this, that he, in his words, the untrustworthy one, had not trusted God, the only trustworthy one, to protect God's own reputation by letting the new heresy of Christ followers flourish. So he, the untrustworthy one, persecuted the new Christians himself, having to do God's work for him because, I don't know, God wasn't up to it. But God, but God, the only trustworthy one, by his grace, chose me, Paul, the untrustworthy one. And entrusted me with the gospel. Who can explain such things? Who can understand such things? This knowledge, this experience of God's grace will haunt Paul, all his ministry. When the three preachers, without fanfare, walked into Thessalonica one day, they knew skepticism and suspicion awaited them. So, they provided their lives for open inspection as examples. Just as Jesus had done, village by village in Galilee. 
This is the language of imitation. This is the learning by watching and then doing. This is the effort, an art, a craft, a skill of mimicking a mentor. It is the commitment of the one to be in order to show and of the other to become like in order to be. By living godly lives, they showed a disbelieving city what was needed by doing the two necessary things, showing what godliness looks like and that it is possible to live this way, just like Jesus. Ask the very first disciples. Ask the disciples of any place and time, including our own. Humble apostles, speaking humbly of a humble Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, living humbly in full view of believing and non-believing alike. That's bold. That's brave. That's beyond censure. That's above reproach. You know this. God knows this. We are imitating Jesus, the image of the invisible God. You are imitating as well, the preachers will say to the Thessalonians, and you're doing it well. You, the newest church, are imitating the very first churches, the churches in Judea, in the maybe even the most important way. You are imitating their suffering by your suffering. They suffered at the hands of their own people, the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, our countrymen, Paul, a Jew, speaking of his own. You suffer from your own people, the Greeks, the same things. It is the same thing. Whether here or there, then or now, Jew or Thessalonian, suffering is imitation of Jesus. Jesus the suffering servant of God. You, like us, like the churches in Judea, bear the marks, the unmistakable marks of being Christian, suffering for Jesus, suffering like Jesus. Let me pause here. We want to be very careful here. A willful misreading of this passage has caused much wrong in the church and has accompanied great horrors in the world. The Bible never says the Jews killed Jesus. Never. Paul does not say it here. Never does the Bible call the Jews Christ killers. Never. Paul says not the Jews, comma, who killed Jesus as if this is on all the Jews. The Jews, comma, you know, the people that killed Jesus. Paul says, without comma, the Jews who killed Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. A subset, a reference to those conspiring with the Romans against the Savior and against Paul's mission. Some of his countrymen had conspired with the Romans to put Jesus to death. Some, they will know God's wrath. Some had killed the prophets, some. Some had driven Paul and the apostles out of Jerusalem, some. But Jesus, but Jesus, loving the people of God, however opposed to God some may be, 
on a cross gave himself for them, on a cross asked God's forgiveness for them, on a cross died for them. The Jews are not them to Paul or the Bible. They may, some of them, reject God. God will not reject them. Paul will restrict his denunciation to their opposition to the mission of God in Christ, in the prophets, in the apostles. Paul speaks as a man worried about his countrymen. When he speaks of the wrath of God, he does not threaten it, he laments it. From that wrath, this once persecutor of the people of God was saved. From that wrath, he prays and preaches that they too will be saved. He once thought he was the hand of the wrath of God. Once. Paul will not damn them. He will preach to them first as it had come to him. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, the Thessalonians. One day, much later to us. Well, what shall we say? Our ministry, that of the First Presbyterian Church of San Diego, is to be like that of the traveling preachers. We are to model, as did Paul and Silas and Timothy, an unmistakable calling from the God of all people to proclaim his gospel to all people, far and wide, near and dear. An immovable commitment to live lives of integrity before all people, especially our own people. An unwavering love for believer, non-believer, and persecutor alike. That is the same love that we received in Christ, God's love. We are to model what has been modeled for us by the preachers, the Thessalonians, the churches in Judea, Jesus. Well then, what shall we do? We will become imitators of their faith and their faithfulness. God help us. Let us pray. Strengthen our conviction of our calling to proclaim the gospel. Strengthen our commitment to live lives of integrity before all. Strengthen our love for all, which is the love we have received. Amen.